welcome so good to have you here tonight. We're going to begin with number four. Number four, down from his glory, ever living story, my God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger to his own stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and agony. Number four. Down from his glory, ever living story, my God and Savior came, and Jesus was his name. Born in a manger, to his own a stranger, a man of sorrows, tears, and Mary. 
This is, we would say to somebody, rest assured. Rescue Mary means, in effect, be comforted, be encouraged, don't despair. And the reason is given, because Christ was born to save us. So it's a call to us to find comfort and joy in the message of the gospel that Christ came to save us. Number five. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Matthew and chapter 2. 
Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down, and notice this, worshipped him. They didn't worship Joseph. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship the Holy Family, as they're sometimes called. They worshiped him, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then, of course, Herod sends his soldiers to kill any child of a certain age in the hopes that he would be able to murder the Lord Jesus. We're going to look tonight at the carol called Hark the Herald Angels Said. It is rather remarkable that we actually even have this carol. It has been called the, the carol that should not exist. And in a few minutes, I'll explain to you why that is the case. There are four hymns that were so widely popular during the 1800s that they became known as the Great Four. One was All Praise to Thee, My God, This Night by Thomas Ken. Another one was written by Charles Wesley, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. The third one was written by Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And the fourth was this carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, also by Charles Wesley. Christmas carols as we know them were abolished by the English Puritan Parliament in 1627. As a result, there was a scarcity of Christmas hymns and carols in the 17th and early 18th centuries. Hark the Herald Angels Sing was one of the few that was written during this period. The melody for this familiar carol was composed by the famous Felix Mendelssohn almost 100 years after Wesley wrote the words. How those words and that music came together is more than a little interesting. 
In my opinion, there are very few hymns in the entire world where the lyrics and the tune are so perfectly matched as they are in the case of this carol. But ironically, neither Charles Wesley nor Felix Mendelssohn would have wanted this music to be joined with these words. The music is from the second chorus of a cantata written by Felix Mendelssohn in 1840, celebrating the 400th anniversary of Johannes Gutenberg and the invention of the printing press. Mendelssohn, who wrote many, many sacred pieces of music, felt that this piece should be linked with a patriotic, and as he said, a merry subject, rather than something sacred. Charles Wesley, on the other hand, had requested that his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, should only be coupled with slow and solemn religious music. However, in 1855, long after both Mendelssohn and Wesley were dead, an organist named Dr. William Cummings joined the joyous Mendelssohn tune with Wesley's profound words to create the carol that we know today, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I would say, well done, Dr. Cummings. However, there is another remarkable twist to this tale. The words that we sing are not exactly what Charles Wesley wrote. They were altered by Wesley's close friend, George Whitfield, in 1753, 14 years after Charles Wesley wrote it. Wesley's original, written as a, quote, hymn for Christmas Day, and first published in 1739, is made up of 10 four-line verses rather than the longer eight-line verses with a chorus, which we have now. In the original version of Wesley's, the hymn opens with the words, Hark, how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. No herald angels to be found there. Welkin is a word for the sky. It's an old English word for the sky or the vault of heaven. Shakespeare used it 18 times in his play, plays. Now, while I'm sure that you use the word welkin all the time while you're shopping for groceries, I was not all that familiar with the word. Even in the mid-1700s, George Whitfield sensed the obscurity of the word welkin and changed it to hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Whitfield also cut the final verses, shortening the hymn to its present three verses. He published his version of the hymn, which apparently distressed his good friend Charles Wesley, who resented, among other things, the unbiblical picture of angels singing. However, Whitfield's changes became the more popular version, so bye-bye, welcome, and hello, herald angels. Originally, it was sung to a few different tunes, one of which is the tune for Christ the Lord is Risen Today. But in 1855, William Cummings, organist at Waltham Abbey in England, adapted Mendelssohn's tune to the lyrics of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. When it was published, Cummings' version quickly became the standard tune for the carol. So, think of what all that means. When we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we are singing words that the author never wanted us to sing. We sing it to a tune that the composer never wanted us to use, and we're singing a song that the English government never wanted us to know. That is why the hymn has been called the carol that should not exist. I like to think that there was someone who knew better than Charles Wesley, Felix Mendelssohn, and the English Parliament, and that God has kindly allowed us to sing glory to the newborn king in such stirring words and to such stirring music. Now what I read to you tonight and what that carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, does is first of all, it introduces us to a unique Expression, a unique expression. Born a king, 
And then it reminds us of a, of a necessary experience for each of us because it talks about people being born a second time or born again. So I want you to think about the newborn king and the twice-born men and women who are born again. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen a star in the east and we have come to worship him. The Lord Jesus was not born a prince. He was born a king. Most royal births are such that the male child is a prince whose father is still on the throne. If his father has died, then that baby who is going to be the king is actually, until he grows up, is actually under the care of someone who would be, for instance, a prince regent who would be a, an adult who would handle all the decisions because the king is just the baby. But Christ wasn't born a prince. He was born a king. He was born to reign. He was born to rule. And there was nobody on the throne at the time. Nobody else who had the rights that he had. Born a king. He pre-existed. That is, he was eternal. Strictly speaking, he is the only one who ever came into the world. Came into the world. Because he was somewhere before he came. You and I were conceived and, born and, and, and were given birth, but we didn't come from somewhere else. He did. He came. Micah, in the Old Testament, the prophet said that his goings forth are from of old, even from the days of eternity. Isaiah reminds us of his, in, in the precision of Scripture, that a child was born, but a son was given. Because, you see, the son existed eternally. God gave his son, and that son was born as a baby. The child was born. He was preeminent. The title King of the Jews is a title of preeminence because God's stated purpose was to make the nation of Israel the head of the nations. Therefore, Israel's king would of necessity be the high king over all other kings or in the wonderful language of our Bible, he would be king of kings and he would be lord of lords. So that is the marvel of his coming. And in some ways, it shows us his heart. Because he is the only person in all of history who had the ability to choose where he would be born. What family he'd be born into. What position on the social status would be his. He didn't choose to be born in a palace. He didn't choose to be born in a comfortable bed with people worshiping and adoring him because he was, the, he was royalty. He chose to be born of parents who were so poor that they could only bring the poorest of sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. The one person who could choose where he would be born chose a manger in Bethlehem, a feeding trough for animals, and a family of a carpenter and his wife. I think we get a glimpse of his heart. But I want you to think about the, the contrasts that, that are presented to us in the Bible because I think they, it, it shows us our heart. It shows us what we are like when he came. Think of this now. Think of the hatred of Herod and the worship of the wise men. Because you are presented here with no middle ground. It's either kill him or crown him. Herod, I've got to kill him. Because I'm the king, Herod says. And I cannot have a rival. The wise men, 
They've come from, from miles and they've come to worship him. Now, as far as I can have been able to trace it, it would seem to me that these wise men came from what is the modern country of Iraq. And they had come, perhaps they had read what the famous, the most famous of all the wise men had written. Maybe they had studied his writings. The man's name was Daniel. And they knew that this man was coming. And they have come now to worship this baby who was born king of the Jews. But to Herod, there was no compromise. There was no middle ground. They could not coexist. Either, either Christ is in charge or, or Herod is in charge. And you know, that, that, that's something that happens very similar to us. Very similar to us. Because when a person hears the gospel, what, he, what he's being told is that he is a helpless sinner and he needs Christ to save him. And Christ either is the Lord and you bow to him and accept him, or you say, no. No, I'm going to hold the reins. I'm going to be in control. I'm going to be doing the steering. I don't want anybody else. I don't want Christ to be ruler over me. And so Herod wants to kill him. But the wise men, with an understanding of who he is, they bow to worship him. Which of these two is more like you? Which of these two is more like you? Herod, who wants to get rid of the whole thing. He wants nothing to do with this. Or the wise men who realize who he is and have come to worship. Think of the contrast with the indifference, the indifference at the inn in Bethlehem and the search of the shepherds. They've come to Bethlehem. And as you know, at the inn, there was no room. Now, this is an act of persecution. Nobody came barreling out of the inn, threatening to kill Joseph or Mary or the child that was going to be born. This was not persecution. This was just icy, glacial indifference. No room in the inn because it was filled with so many other people. So much else was going on. Sorry, there's no room for you. It may be, it may be that the majority of people really don't get angry when they read the Bible or when they hear about a need of being born again. It's just the difference. There's so much going on. There's so much to do. Life is so full. There's so many responsibilities. There's so many duties. There's so many things to experience. It's like a hotel that's full, and there's just no room for God, and no room for the Bible, and there's no room for salvation. I was having meetings here in uh, Connecticut, tent meetings, a number of years ago, and um, there was a gentleman coming to the meetings, and um, one night when the meeting was done, he said to me, I, I would like to ask you a couple of questions. Do you have a moment? And I said, sure. I said, just let me put the generator away and I'll meet you right in the field. So when I was done putting everything away, he was walking along the tree line and he came over and this is what he said to me. Did I hear you say, he said to me, did I hear you say tonight that when a person hears the gospel, it may be that they will have to rearrange priorities and put this first. I said, yes. And did I hear you say tonight that you were saved at the age of 15 and a half? And I said, yes. Well, he said, will you please tell me what priorities did you have to rearrange at the age of 15 and a half? And I said, that's the point. That's the point. I was saved young enough that I wasn't balancing nine or 10 different things. I, I, I wasn't married, I was 15 and a half. I didn't have to say, what will my wife say? I, I wasn't employed in, in, in a full-time employee. I was still a student at school. I didn't have to say, well, how will this have an impact on my job? I said, I, it was just, I heard the gospel and I realized it's, it's heaven or hell for eternity. 
Do I want Christ or do I not want him? Do I want salvation or do I not want him? Well, he said, I, I, he said yeah, he said, I, I, I understand. He said, you just, you, you don't know what I'm going through. You know what he was going through? These meetings were in a place called Terryville, Connecticut. He worked in, if I remember correctly, Darien. What he would do is leave work, he worked so late that he would leave work and drive directly to the tent. Sit in the tent meeting for an hour, after driving about an hour to get there. Leave the tent meeting at night, have close to an hour to get to his home, and eat supper when he got home. 9.30 at night. On top of that, his wife, was very upset that he was spending all this time attending religious services. So here he was, trying to balance all these things. Life was so busy, see? There was so much occupying his time, work, family, travel. Maybe your life is like that inn at Bethlehem, and it's so packed with things that there's just no time for God. You know what the Lord Jesus says to you and me? He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek it first. Because you see, if I die tomorrow, it's really not going to matter that the house got the, the second coat of paint on it or that the, the lawn was mowed or that the, the brickwork was fixed. It's really not going to matter that the oil was changed. If I die tomorrow, the only thing that really matters is will I be in heaven or will I be in hell? So I am so thankful that at the age of 15 and a half, the single most important issue in my whole existence was settled that July night when I trusted Christ as my Savior. Look at the shepherds. The angels come and make the announcement. Unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. What did they say? Now they're keeping watch over their flock by night. What did they say? Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has been told us. And they run to Bethlehem. You have shepherds in the middle of their job rushing to meet the Christ. And you have people right there where Christ is in Bethlehem and they have no interest. Which of these two is like you? Or like me? Think of the contrast between the leaders in Jerusalem with their lack of knowledge because they don't know where Christ is, is to be born. Herod is has no idea that the, the, the people, the, the, the religious scholars, they aren't even aware it happened. They've got to scramble and search the Bible to find out where, where did this take place. Think of them and think of Simeon's certainty because it is it presents itself to me as the difference between knowing about him and knowing him. Did you think there was anything strange when you read with me the passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Did you think there was anything strange about what happened? Now please, banish from your mind the picture of three men on camels. We three kings of Orient are. The Bible never tells us how many they were. The Bible never says they were kings. It says they were wise men. And you will understand that traveling that distance and traveling over deserts and traveling with valuables 
They didn't just hop on a camel and come driving. There would be a huge retinue. In fact, the whole city was turned upside down when they came. There would be dozens of men. There would be soldiers. There would be guards going with them. And this caravan pulls up outside Jerusalem. And these foreigners, perfect strangers, say, the king of the Jews has been born. Do you know where? We saw his star in the east. We want to worship him. Now, what happens in this story? When they find out from the Bible that it's Bethlehem, what do they do? They go to Bethlehem. Then they see the star, and the star guides them likely to Nazareth. But what about the, what about the people that read the Bible to them? Do you know that the people that looked it up in the Bible supposedly were waiting, waiting for this very event. If you would ask the Jew, what are you waiting for? He would say, I'm waiting for the Messiah to come, our king. This was what supposedly they were living for the moment when he would come. And yet, the only ones that go to find him are these foreigners. And these other people just casually read to him while he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And they never even leave the city. Because there are some people, and they may have the Bible, and they may say that they live in a Christian land. That's very debatable right now. They may know chapter and verse, but they just don't know Christ. I was like that. I grew up in a home where the Bible was read. My parents, my parents were believers in the Lord Jesus. They were Christians. I saw the reality of what it meant to be a Christian in their life. So I, I knew about the Lord Jesus, but I did not know him until July the 10th, 1966, when he became my personal savior. I personally trusted Christ. And it's not now just a matter of knowing about him and being able to tell you some details. He was born in a manger. He grew up in Nazareth. He was crucified in, in, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. But I met him in the Bible. See, I, I'm not talking about a mystical appearance, but I came to know the Lord Jesus, not just facts, but the person who loved me and died for me. And God wants you to know his son as your personal savior. So as I close, I want you to think about this other expression that is used here. Born to raise the sons of earth, Wesley wrote, born to give them second birth. Christ came, Christ was born, and Christ died so that you could have a second birth. A second birth is what the Lord Jesus meant when he talked about you must be born again. The first time a person is born, he or she receives physical life. So I'm not going to tell you how long ago I was born because I'm still a very young man. But there was a day when I was born and I received physical life. It, it, it equipped me, it enabled me to live in this world. At the age of 15 and a half, I received eternal life. That's the gift of God. That's what the Bible says. That when a person receives Christ, he receives everlasting or eternal life. That was a second birth. That has equipped me and will enable me to live with God. So obviously you've had a first birth because you're here. Have you had a second birth? Has it been a day in your life when you were born again? I had a funeral some time ago. Uh, if I tell you 
the name of the lady, you'll realize how long ago it was, at least some here who knew Mr. and Mrs. Clay Fight. Mrs. Fight died, and uh, I was given some papers of hers to just acquaint myself with dates and facts from her life to be able to blend it into the message I was going to give. And in the account that was given to me was how her mother was saved. Her mother was an extremely religious woman. She was, the, she was just admired and loved throughout the neighborhood where they lived as a very moral, kind, church-going, respectable woman. She had a Sunday school class. She attended church regularly. She was just an all-around good person. And she was ironing one day. And she loved to sing. So she had a hymn book open and had it open to, to turn it to different hands. And she had it open. And every now and then she'd just glimpse at it to make sure she had the words right. And she's singing away, right? Singing a hymn. And her elbow bumped the hymn book. And like a piece of toast was falling on the wrong side, the hymn book went down and fluttered. And when she picked it up, it had turned to another page. And she picked it up and she put it back on the ironing board and she looked at the words. And this is what she read. A ruler once came to Jesus by night to ask him the way of salvation and light. The master made answer on words true and plain, you must be born again. And then the chorus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. I verily, verily say unto thee, you must be born again. And she thought to herself, I know those words. Jesus said that. that that's from the Bible. She said, I've never seen that song before. He said, you must be born again. And she thought to herself, have I been born again? Have I been born again? Now, here's what could have happened. At that very point, she could have said to herself, well, I don't understand much about this, but God knows I'm a pretty good person. I'm just going on with her iron. Or she could have said to herself, that's what Jesus says. He's the one who says, if you're not born again, you can't go to heaven. I'd better find out about this. So you know what she did? She shut off the iron. She went into her bedroom. Closed the door. Got out her Bible. Got down on her knees. And this is what she said to God. God, I don't want to leave this room until I'm sure that I have been born again. Would you please help me and show me what that means? And then she began to look through the Bible. And that day, she found out that to be born again means you have received eternal life from God by trusting Christ as your Savior. Jesus says you must be born again. See how personal it is? It's said to Nicodemus, he's a, he's a ruler of the Jews, he's, he's a very, very religious man, he's a student of the Bible, and he's come to Jesus at night, and he says to Jesus what he knows, he says, Rabbi, we know. He's speaking about himself and his fellow members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the rulers of the people. Rabbi, he said, we know, thou art a teacher come from God. No one can do the miracles you're doing except God be with them. This is what we know. The Lord Jesus says to him, here's something that you don't know. Except the person is born again, he cannot, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And Nicodemus realizes that with all his religion, he has never been born again. And that would mean that he could never go to heaven. See how personal it is? In fact, you remember in the passage what the Lord Jesus says, don't be surprised that I'm saying to you. Don't be surprised that I'm saying to you. You must be born again. Nicodemus wasn't going to go away thinking, now Jesus wants me to go tell other people that they need to be born again. Because the Lord Jesus was telling him personally. We were talking today, uh, I was talking with someone about a preacher from years ago. His name was Edward Paxson. Payson, pardon me. P-A-Y, Edward Payson. And um, Edward Payson was a preacher during the era when John and Charles Wesley uh, were preaching. And he had a meeting announced for a certain place, a certain night, and he was sitting in the front, and when he got up to uh, read his text and preach, there was one person in the building, one. And he thought to himself, should he just close the meeting? You know, one person. But he thought to himself, well, others might come because they may just be coming late, and then there would be no meeting, and the windows are open, and someone might actually be able to hear outside. So he went ahead of the meeting. When the meeting was done, he thanked the man for coming, closed the doors, and went home. Edward Payson said months later he was having a meeting, and a man came up to him after the meeting, and he said, Mr. Payson, do you remember the night when you got up to preach? And he mentioned the place, and he said, and there was only one man in the meeting. Yes, Mr. Payson said, I remember it very well. You know, I was that man. You were, yeah, I was that man. You know, I, I, I got salvation that night. He said, you did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, you, you were preaching. And you, you preached that, that, that the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and unless you repent, you will perish. And he said, I looked around to see who you were talking to. And there was nobody else there. I thought, he means me. A little while later, you talked about Jesus dying, and you said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I was the only one there. And he said, everything you said, you know what was happening? He was doing exactly what Nicodemus did in John chapter 3. He was taking everything personally to himself. See, he wasn't generously passing it on to somebody else. Like a woman I know in Iowa who said she used to look around the meeting and say, Oh, I'm glad she's here tonight. She needs to hear that. I'm glad he's here tonight. He really needs to hear this. And uh, I think the preacher must mean that person over there. That's good. I hope, I hope he's listening. She said it wasn't until about the, the third week of the meeting that she realizes that, realized that God was talking to her. So I hope you will take it personally, that Jesus says you must be born again. This is why he came. That's why Wesley put it this way. Born. Born. Why was Jesus born? Born. To raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth. Now you will understand that this is paramount. This is essential. The Lord Jesus says you must be born again. If Christ is insistent, we better not be hesitant. If he says you must be born again, then if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. There's no getting around this. You must be born again. I was telling somebody the other day about um, um, a singer on the West Coast, and she was asked to um, sing at a wedding. 
And she and her husband went, and she sang at the wedding, and sang wonderfully, and uh, then the reception began with hors d'oeuvres. They were in a, they were in a, a, a beautiful, huge, uh, actually it was the, at, at that time, the largest skyscraper on the West Coast was in Seattle, and that's the building where it was, with a very wealthy couple. And the hors d'oeuvres, she described the, Attendants moving in and out with all sorts of food. It was incredible. And then there came a point where someone cut the decorative ribbon that was across the staircase. And she said, the bride and groom, hand in hand, swept up the staircase, and then all their guests just followed them up the stairs. And the singer, her name was Ruthanna Metzger, she said, Roy, my husband and I, we walked up the stairs. We got to the top. People were slowed down. There was a man with a, a, a list in his hand. He was checking people, and um, it was our turn. We came up to him and he said, may I have your name, please? And she said, yes, uh, Metzger. Rutana and Roy Metzger. How, how, how do you spell it? Oh, she said Metzger. M-M-E-T-Z-G-E-R, Metzger. I'm sorry, he said, I don't see your name on the list. Oh, she said, there must be some mistake. She said, I'm, I'm a friend of the, the brides. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the singer at the wedding. Well, I'm sorry, he said. The only ones allowed into the reception here are people whose names on the list. Don, please. Would you please show this couple to the... Would, and the word she used was the service elevator. Would you please show this couple to the service elevator? So she said, we followed him. He pressed the button and held the door for us. We stepped in. He pressed a button for the parking garage. And the doors closed. He said, have a good night. The doors closed. She said, my husband and I rode down the elevator in silence. Walked to our car. Started to drive home. After about a mile, my husband said to me, Rosanna, what happened? She said, when the invitation came, I was busy. I, I didn't think I had to return the card. I was the singer at the wedding. I thought, and she started to cry. She thought she was going to get in, but her name wasn't on the list. The Bible says that Christ has a list. You know what the list is called? His book of life. Do you know what happens when a person is saved? God puts that person's name in that book. Do you know what the Bible says about people whose names are in that book? It says they will never be in the lake of fire. And that is why Jesus says you must be born again. The only way to reach heaven, please understand, this is not me. Don't, don't, don't think my authority is behind this. Christians meet in this building regularly. It's not their authority. This is what God says. This is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus says. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. If you are an honest person, which I am sure you are, then please take to heart what he says and make sure you have been born again. The greatest thing, the greatest present you could give your son the greatest present you could give your daughter 
this Christmas, the greatest present, you, present that you could give to your wife or to your husband is to make sure that you are born again. It was the early 1900s when my grandfather came from Italy, came to Philadelphia, and was given a Bible by a man named Mr. Caesar Patrizio. At that point in his life, my grandfather believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he was buried in Joseph's new tomb, that he rose again the third day, that he ascended to heaven, that he was coming back to reign. What my grandfather did not know was that you had to be saved now and you could be saved now. And if you didn't have eternal life before you died, you would perish. He did not know that it was possible to actually be saved and know it. He always thought that it was up to him. If I just do the best I can and keep it up and, and make sure I do the best I can, that, that one day I'll stand before God and he'll sort of he'll, he'll weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds and whichever is, is heavier, that will decide where I go. And here was the Bible for the first time in his life, reading it, he could see in the Bible it said, you can have salvation now and know it and be sure before you die that you will be in heaven. Now, you know why I'm telling you that? My mother wasn't even born when her dad, my grandfather, trusted Christ. But as a result, my mother became saved because he told her the gospel. My older sister became saved my older brother is saved. And the day came when I was saved. The best thing my grandfather ever gave me was by trusting Christ, he made sure I grew up in a home where Christ was known. Best thing you could ever do for your family will be to make sure that you have been born again. Thank you for listening. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for thy blessing in thy word. We thank thee for the Lord Jesus that his coming was to provide eternal life and a new birth for men and women to be born again. We ask for thy blessing on each person here and each family. We think of these dear children and we pray for their blessing. We pray that their lives will be preserved from harm and danger, that they will be preserved from the awful marring and distorting that sin creates in life and that their souls will be saved for eternity. We pray for safety as we go to our homes giving thanks in the Savior's name. Amen. Now we're going to sing Wesley's hymn, number seven, Wesley's carol, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Verse three, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Number seven. And again, thank you very much for coming. Our God.